Our passage this morning comes from Matthew chapter 10. We will be looking at verses 16 through 25. It can be found on page 815 in the Bibles in the pews. Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 25. These are Jesus' words speaking to his disciples. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? Together, let us seek the Lord for wisdom as we uh, try to understand his passage and his words to us. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true, that it is eternal. God, that you use it to revive the souls of your people. And we come asking that you would do that very thing this morning, that you would revive us, your disciples, to know what it looks like for us to be your disciples here today, in this time, in this place. Would my words be true? May they be faithful to your word. May your spirit Give me boldness, may give your people understanding. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Disciple. It is not a new word. Whether you have a church background or not, you have likely heard it on numerous occasions. The word disciple is used roughly 250 times as the title of choice for the followers of Jesus throughout the Gospels and the book of Acts. In fact, Isaiah 8.16 is the only occurrence outside of those five books where the term disciple is used. None of Paul's letters or any of the other epistles mention disciple. It is almost a term exclusively used by Jesus Christ. The term that he chose to bestow upon his people, those who would follow after him. Maybe this is why, despite his familiarity, Disciple continues to increase in popularity, particularly in the, in the Western church where it seems to be kind of a buzzword. Making disciples, discipleship, discipling ministries are only some of the many ways disciple is being emphasized in churches, even our own church. A simple search for the word disciple on a, a site such as the Gospel Coalition, their website yields over 40,000 results emphasizing that the modern church places a heavy emphasis on this idea of a disciple. And all of this attention means it is only fair to ask then, what exactly is a disciple? Specifically, what does it look like today, 2,000 years removed from when these original 12 men were given that name by Jesus Christ himself? 
And here is where we can be thankful for those 250 biblical uses. We can look to them to help us better understand what it means for us to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so over the next two weeks, and again at the end of September, I hope to do just that, to solidify our, our, our understanding of what being a disciple of Jesus Christ looks like. But instead of picking through a handful of those passages, we're going to spend our time right here in this particular chapter of the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 10. Why? Well, first off, it starts by listing the 12 disciples. It gives us the names of the men who continued the work of Christ through the power of his spirit. They are our first examples of disciples. Second, Jesus also gave them clear instructions as to what their immediate ministry as disciples would look like. Those are found in uh, the verses we didn't read in 5 through 15. They were specific to that moment, to that place, to that time. But last and most critical for us today, Jesus gave them a clear picture of what being a disciple would look like moving forward. Not only for these 12, but for all those who would follow after Jesus Christ. And verses 16 through 42 is that picture. It's certainly not exhaustive, but this section certainly gives us plenty to work with. It gives us a sufficient picture of what a disciple looks like. And we begin this morning with the picture of Christ-likeness. As disciples called and sent by Jesus Christ, aim to be like Christ. Again, as disciples called and sent by Jesus Christ, aim to be like Christ. And Jesus declares this much in verse 25 when he says, It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. This is the core tenet of what it means to be a disciple. Its chief aim is to be like Christ. And in this section of Matthew 10, Jesus reveals how his disciples are to be like him. The points are listed in your bulletin, and there are three. A disciple is like Christ in his or her expectations, their example, and their endurance. Christ-like in expectation, example, and endurance. And we begin with a disciple is like Christ in his or her expectations. Simply, we anticipate facing, we expect to face what Jesus faced. The first of those expectations is a disciple expects hostility. Life as a follower of Jesus Christ is hard. Jesus smashes the rose-colored glasses before the disciples can even pick them up and put them on. Listen to what he says in, chapter, in verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. This is not exactly what you want to read on a job description. I don't think I would have been here if the session had put that on the job description. I probably would have been like, I'm good, I'll stay where I'm at. It's essentially saying if you join our team, you're going to feel like you're in a feeding frenzy and you're the bait. But this is Jesus' guarantee. He is not being hypothetical. He says you will. He says when instead of you might or if. All of these things he describes would take place for a disciple of Jesus Christ. The disciples could count on it. And he details what they could expect. And the history of the church proves that the word of Christ was true. The hostility would be physical. Listen to what he says. They will deliver you to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. 
You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. These places are public. They're political places. They're religious places. They're powerful locations. Here is where the hostility would flow out of. And it would certainly make life difficult. It would not be easy to avoid the hostility coming from these types of places. And the book of Acts gives us proof that this reality happened at almost every point. Just read through the first couple chapters. We see Peter and John are brought before the council and threatened to stop speaking in the name of Christ. We see other disciples arrested as well, but this time they're flogged to give additional pressure. We see Stephen is stoned for testifying to Jesus Christ. James, the brother of John, is killed by Herod. And then after his conversion, after killing the likes of the disciples, Paul is on the run from Jewish leadership and mobs. And it ends with him waiting to stand before Caesar on account of Jesus Christ. Such hostility has only continued throughout the history of the church. Her history is filled with stories of martyrdom, of persecution, and of hostility. And it continues to this day. If you look at places like China, like North Korea, like Africa, and India, and Iran, and countless other countries where Christians are daily arrested, tortured, persecuted, and even killed for their faith. The hostility was a guarantee that disciples of Jesus Christ should expect. And this should certainly motivate us to pray daily for our brothers and sisters in such places of hostility. They need continued boldness. They need strength. They need comfort. They need the encouragement that comes with being united to the body of Christ who suffers and rejoices alongside of its members. But uh, such expectation of hostility should also keep us grounded. In our present context, it is easy for us to become discouraged, even fearful at the deteriorating treatment of Christians, even in this country. Things have certainly changed, I would say, in just the past 10 years alone. But we should not panic. We should expect it because Jesus told us to. It is not a surprise to him. He's not in heaven shocked at the hostility facing his people. And neither should it be to us. But we see that this hostility is not only physical, it is not only dragging and torturing and being thrown before courts, it is also verbal. Jesus says this at the very end, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? And at the end of Matthew chapter 9, the Pharisees, this is where we see them utter these words, they slander Christ by attributing his work to Satan. If they could not stop him, the least they could do was try to destroy his reputation. Name-calling, ridicule, false witness, slander are things that Christians can expect to face. Jesus said this at the end of the sermon, or in the Beatitudes at the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account. Again, in the book of Acts, we see that the disciples are called drunk at Pentecost. Paul is mocked as being foolish and silly for preaching about the resurrection. And such treatment is continuing today. We're called backward, bigots, fanatics, intolerance. And the list goes on because of our commitment to the truth of God on matters such as sexuality and gender and marriage, absolute truth, even the existence of hell, and many other issues. 
Following Jesus, committing ourselves to the truth makes us targets of such verbal hostility. And we have probably all experienced them at some point to varying degrees. Maybe it's from family members, maybe it's from coworkers or friends, or even complete strangers. But again, this should not surprise us, neither should it offend us. Jesus prepared us for it by promising that it would come. But not only can disciples expect hostility, they can also expect outright rejection. Listen to what Jesus says elsewhere. Brother will deliver brother over to death. The father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Contrary to many of our expectations, the family is not always a safe place for the disciples of Jesus Christ. Relationships between parents and children, between siblings, may be some of the most risky and dangerous relationships. They may be the very birthplace of the hostility we just mentioned. And this exact scenario is playing out in places such as China and India, to be specific. If you don't know, read the reports. Chinese-believing parents cannot share their faith with their children in fear of being reported by their children. Believing children have to remain silent or risk of their own parents turning them into the government. The family is not a place where we can find encouragement and safety, but it may be the very place where these brothers and sisters are most at risk. And I can remember a time when I was in India of hearing tear-filled stories of children, some as young as eight, being thrown out of their homes because of Jesus Christ. The joy that they received in knowing Christ at these camps that I was a part of was immediately met with the sorrow of rejection. Some found believing neighbors or fellow church members who could take them in. Others simply lived on the streets. And stories like these are truly heartbreaking. They seem unfathomable. But without trying to appear cold or callous, Jesus guaranteed things like this would happen to his disciples. A disciple is not above his teacher. Jesus Christ faced these exact same things. John says that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. These included the people of Israel, his own family members who thought he was crazy. Jesus knew the Old Testament prophecies such as Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 would be fulfilled in his life and in his death. He would be forsaken. He would be rejected. He would be stricken and slandered. And in fact, these words that Matthew uses in chapter 10 of delivering, of flogging, of betrayal... They're going to reappear in his account of Jesus' arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. Jesus expected this kind of treatment, and he faced it head on. He promises his disciples that they will face the same as they hold fast to him. So what are you expecting as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Ease? Acceptance? Appreciation? What are we expecting as a church committed to being disciples and making disciples of Jesus Christ? Are we expecting fanfare, maybe public recognition, maybe kind words as we hold fast to and proclaim the truth? May we take heart the words of our teacher and of our Lord and our master. The world is not going to like us. It doesn't like us. We should, be ex we should expect to be treated as such. We must have Christ-like expectations. But not only do we need Christ-like expectations, a disciple is like Christ 
in his or her example. Simply, we mimic the example set by Christ himself. This is what Jesus says when he tells his disciples to be examples of character. He tells them at the very beginning, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. This kind of sounds almost oxymoronic to be clashing of serpents and doves. But these words sound similar to what Paul says in Romans 16 when he says, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Jesus commands his disciples to become this combination of shrewdness and innocence. He wants them to blend them together, as one commentator says, to have wisdom without compromise. You see, shrewdness by itself leads to cunning. Think of the serpent in Genesis 3, which is actually the same word used here. He was cunning, but he lacked wisdom. Cunning disciples strip the message and the power of the gospel. They center it on human wisdom, on human ability, instead of the power and the wisdom of God. But on the other side, if we are simply innocent, it can lead to ignorance or even naivety. Think of children, for an example. They have a sweet innocence to them. We appreciate it. However, if that is all they go by, they will find themselves in potentially dangerous and even risky situations. They need wisdom. The disciples of Jesus Christ are called to be these people of character, combining wisdom with innocence. Their methods are not uninformed, or, and, but they're intentional. We're not afraid of a fight, but we're also not running around looking for one. And how prevalent is that for us today? I fear too many Christians, sometimes I can be just as guilty as any, take to Facebook or Twitter or any other form of social medias, seeking to incite anger, maybe seeking to incite this hostility. And sometimes it's even amongst one another. That is not being innocent as doves and wise as serpents. It's simply leaning more towards just being straight serpents. We would be better to follow the words of Paul in Philippians 2, which Tim preached on just a couple weeks ago, where he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in this world. This is the character of a disciple of Jesus Christ. We don't take to the likes of social media for what we call acceptable slander. It's still slander. We don't adopt the same tactics used against us. But instead, may we display this wisdom without compromise in hopes that some, even those hostile towards us, would come to know Christ as a result of our character. But second, a disciple is also an example of dependence. Jesus tells his disciples that when they get dragged in front of people, when they are beaten, when they are flogged, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Think about this. Many of the disciples were uneducated men. They held no formal skill or training when it comes to rhetoric, to debate, to philosophy. The last thing that any one of these men would have wanted was to be standing in front of the religious and the social elite having to justify their position, their beliefs. That seems to be one of the most intimidating things you could think of. It makes my standing before the presbytery exams kind of just a drop in the bucket. That's, that's no big deal. 
But the disciples would have been staring this reality in the face. Fishermen standing before religious elites, standing before governors, defending their faith. Their livelihood would come down to their ability to talk intelligently and winsomely. And Jesus' words to them is, don't worry about it. Don't be anxious. The spirit is within you. If you will, the spirit has you covered. It would be the spirit who would ease their worries because he would apply himself directly to them. The spirit of God would provide the how they were to speak and the what they were to speak. He would speak directly through them to their audience. What an encouragement for these uneducated and unskilled men. Their father, note Jesus' words, your father would provide for them. They would not be lacking in anything. They would be able to faithfully bear witness to Christ as he has called them to. Again, we can recall the book of Acts. Peter, the unskilled fisherman who constantly put his foot in his mouth, preached two sermons in the first five chapters and saw 5,000 people turn to Christ. Stephen gave one of the best summaries and interpretations of the Old Testament in Scripture. Paul used pagan religious systems to reveal the true God. And whether these disciples silenced their opponents, angered their opponents, walked away or walked to their death, they relied on the Spirit to speak through them. They trusted the promise that Jesus gave. Which begs the question for us, who do we trust in moments like these? When we are called to bear witness about our faith, where do we trust? Where do we stand secure? If you trust in your own understanding, even your own theological insights, they will fail you. If you trust in your ability to craft an airtight tar- uh, argument, a rational, reasoned argument, it will also fail you. Only your reliance upon the Spirit will give you a firm place to stand. But maybe you're on the flip side of the spectrum. You're feeling completely ill-equipped. You can only imagine bumbling and stumbling through your words as you try to explain your faith to someone. But the same promise holds true for you. The Spirit of God himself, the Spirit of wisdom is your strength. He will speak through you. He will give you what you need to say. And he is all you need rely upon him again a disciple is not above his teacher throughout his earthly ministry Jesus was wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove he picked his spots there were times where he withdrew from the from the crowds times where he did not engage the religious leaders there were times where he didn't even heal regardless of those times he still exemplified wisdom and integrity at every point His motives were always pure, seeking to glorify the Father at every moment. And he relied upon the Spirit to accomplish the work he came to do. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 describes this example specifically when Jesus faced his death. He says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He is our example. We live our days as faithful witnesses when all wisdom and integrity. Seek to honor God in your character, in your example, while loving and serving those around you. So we see a disciple is like Christ in their expectations, in their example, and finally we see a disciple is like Christ in our endurance. As Christ faithfully persevered, so should his disciples. 
And endurance, therefore, means patience. Jesus says this in verse 22. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Endurance requires patience. If one is to persevere, to stand fast, they must be patient. And this stands in contrast to the idea of today of active resistance, which is valued today, but it was also valued in Jesus' time. We are told our success in endurance rests in our ability to resist what stands against us, to push back against it. Patience is useless. It serves you no good. But Jesus stresses that patience is the key. It is the sign of a true disciple. I looked up the definition of patience, and this is how Webster says it. The capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. According to this definition, I am not patient. I can't see her here this morning because she's probably feeding Margo, but Bethany is probably nodding in agreement. I am not patient. Living with a strong-willed two-year-old is proving as much. The delay and the trouble are almost always resulting in me being upset. Patience is not my default. It's not your default. It's not us as sinners our default. We want what we want when we want it. That's why I butt heads with my two-year-old, because she wants the same. And I keep pointing to the examples in Acts, but the, because this is where we see the disciples putting these words in Matthew chapter 10 into practice. They endured patiently all kinds of evil and suffering and persecution without retaliation, without anger. In the face of growing hostility and resistance, they prayed, as Acts 4 reveals, not for deliverance, not even for the end of their suffering, but they prayed for boldness, for patience, that they would be able to endure what was facing them. And now patience, patient endurance does not mean that we can't pray for deliverance because the Psalms and Jesus himself gives us examples of doing so. But it changes the way we respond to the hostility, to the rejection, to the ridicule, ridicule that we may face. We patiently endure it without anger, without retaliation, because we know that relief is ultimately coming. It may come this side of heaven, or it may come when Jesus returns and maketh all things new. Regardless, we patiently endure. But it also validates our faith, this patience. It demonstrates where our hope truly lies. Not in changing of circumstances, not in the end of suffering, but in Jesus Christ coming and making all things new. So this patience puts our faith on display for all to see that God may be glorified in and through us. But endurance, while meaning patience, also demands persistence. While endurance is not overtly aggressive, it is, not, it is also not altogether passive. There is an active side to it. The disciples were expected to be engaging. Jesus says this, When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now the end of this verse has caused its fair share of controversy. Some call it the most difficult passage in all of Scripture. What does Jesus mean when he says you won't go through all the towns before the Son of Man comes? Some argue wrongly that Jesus got his timing confused. He thought he was coming back earlier and he was proven wrong. That violates everything we know and believe about Jesus being perfectly true perfectly holy, and fulfilling all that he is called to fulfill. 
Others believe it refers to either his meeting up with the disciples later on, say in a few days or a few weeks, or to his second coming. I find the best understanding to either be in reference to his resurrection and ascension, or even to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, when he would visit, if you will, Israel in judgment. All of these events would signal what Jesus had already promised, Israel's judgment and the inclusion of the Gentiles. The work of the kingdom was shifting away from Israel and moving out into the nations. But regardless of the exact meaning, the point is that disciples are to persistently proclaim the good news. If our message is received, praise the Lord that it's bearing fruit. If our message is rejected, praise the Lord that there's still work to be done and go to the next place. That's what he tells the disciples to do. And is this not the overall testimony again in the book of Acts? Whether it was Peter, John, Paul, or any other disciples, the gospel continued to move. They persistently went from town to town to town to city to nation, proclaiming the good news. Some bore incredible fruit in the form of churches. Some saw leaders and societies completely transformed. Others barely got a word out before doors were closed, disciples were kicked out, or worse. But patient persistence is still the way of a disciple. Which begs the question, how persistent are we? I must admit I'm not that all persistent. In the face of rejection or ridicule, I'm more likely to give up than to press on. I would rather find something easier or find someone more willing to listen than continue to preach from town to town, from people to people. But praise the Lord that the 12 men Jesus gave these instructions to were not like me. Because it was a result of their persistent patience, their endurance, and countless others after them that we gather this morning as the people of God in Arkansas of the United States of America, thousands of miles removed from where Jesus spoke these words. So may we be eager to demonstrate the same persistence as we engage our families, our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces, and our communities with the good news of the gospel. This is our calling. This is our task until the day we are called home or Jesus comes in glory. A disciple is not above his teacher. Jesus is the perfect picture of endurance. He was patient, trusting in the Father's plan. He endured to the very end the hostility of man. He was ultimately vindicated when he walked out of the tomb, securing salvation for all those who placed their faith in him, his disciples. Jesus Christ was persistent. He accomplished everything the Father planned. He fulfilled all of the Old Testament. He left nothing undone. And so on the cross, he boldly and triumphantly declared, it is finished. He faced temptation, obstacles, persecution, ridicule, and everything else he promised his disciples would need to endure. Jesus Christ paved the way that we might walk in his steps, as Peter tells us in his letter, chapter 2, verse 21. He faithfully endured to the very end and calls us to do the same. So what is a disciple? For starters, it is a person who has placed their faith and hope in Jesus Christ to forgive their sin and provide new life, both now and in eternity. And after that, the definition becomes a lot more involved. 
There are certainly countless verses and chapters devoted to this very subject. And it is worthwhile for us to give an in-depth look to each one of them. They all help to provide us a complete picture of what a true disciple looks like. But at the risk of sounding overly simplistic, these 10 verses in Matthew chapter 10 provide us with enough to last us a lifetime. A disciple is like his teacher. He is one who seeks to become more and more like the one who is leading him. This means Jesus as our master and as our teacher is our model. He is the picture we hope to emulate. We adopt his expectations, we follow his example, and we walk in his endurance. As disciples of Jesus Christ, called and sent by him, may we be like Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that you have made us your disciples. That you have, as we heard earlier, called us out of the darkness and into your marvelous light. God, we acknowledge that it is hard to be your disciples. Sometimes it's difficult because what's facing us. Sometimes it's difficult because we're lazy and we just don't want to do it. But God, would you by your spirit renew in us a desire and a striving to be like Christ. To be faithful witnesses of his mercy. To be faithful witnesses of his grace. That a dying and dark world would see us and not tell them, tell each other how great we are, but instead how great you are in saving sinners and making them your people. We pray that you would empower us today and in the days ahead. And we pray this in Christ's name.